La da dee, la da da song from the 90s about she's homeless. God, yeah. La da dee, la da da. La da dee, la da da da. Who sang that? Crystal Waters. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. God, 90s dance. There was some bad 90s dance music. Oh, there was. I know. Like really bad. And, and I'm going to just go out on a limb. I know you probably knew of better stuff, but as a teen growing up in the 90s, there wasn't much to like like <laughs> no it was, even then i knew it was bad yeah yeah but there was some great you know what it's funny you should mention that because one of my favorite bands and they're so controversial and weird but they just re-released their back catalog which they claimed they had destroyed and they didn't and it's back out there now and it's called logic volume one was the klf mm. you remember the klf i remember liking them because they were so different yeah. yeah yeah they were like really weird yeah and that's not to say that there wasn't good music at that time it was the decade of the video right it was i you know what i used to do i used to uh with my vcr record videos me too like Take a compilation of them yeah of, of videos and they're always missing the beginning or the end because you'd have to like oh no they're playing this ah yeah well or what i would do sometimes is just record a whole because we had shows like uh, Friday Night Videos and Good Rockin' Tonight. Uh, and then finally we got Much Music, which is like the uh, it's the Canadian equivalent of MTV. Yeah. But for many years, Much Music was far superior to MTV because they withstood the reality TV show uh, vortex and yeah. just played videos. Like yes. right up until the 2000s. And the CRTC, uh, which is um, for international listeners, it's the Canadian radio and television um, governing body. They had strict rules. So MTV uh, didn't have these kind of rules, but Much Music in Canada had to play 20% Canadian content. Yeah. So because of that, our version of MTV had a really strong Canadian voice. And I think that a lot of the Canadian bands that made it then made it because of that rule it certainly helped you know my favorite band of all time is a canadian band sloan i'm a massive sloan fan i don't even know who they are what i'm I'm sorry i was just gonna say that one of those bands though that were canadian that were big because of i think the rules was that one that did um the superman song crash test dummies oh god Mm -hmm. yeah but seriously and also i think um Bare Naked Ladies had a lot. They owe a lot to to much music. Well, they were huge on much music. They were like personal. Like they would crash the studio quite often. Yeah. But they they are super talented. I don't think they're that great. They're well, they, see. That's my problem with Canadian music. They're a pub band. They're a glorified pub band. They can sing. They're good. And I've seen them live. They're great in concert because they inter, they they connect with their audience. And they write their own music. They're artists. They're just not your kind of music. No, not my kind of music at all. <laughs> okay, so we'll put them on an ugly mountain in Colorado. Do you know, we were talking the other day, a friend of mine were talking about that era, because to me, the 90s is the decade of the music video. And we were talking about what we think from that whole decade, what the number one video that represents that decade so much is and it came down to a very good short list but we came to the conclusion that nothing compares to you by Sinead o'connor is probably the most i see so you're, you're talking about like artistic merit well that whole and and second to that would be um losing my religion oh yeah that's one of those only songs that I can I can sing that whole song or I used to be able to. Well, yeah, you're that generation. But that video is so synonymous with the 90s, right? It is. Well, you could 90s. go on the other direction, though, and, and go with like the big. I, I still remember how big of a, a black and white was Michael Jackson. Yes, because it had that 
it had that effect where the faces changed, and it was the first time we had ever seen that. Yeah, it was the most expensive video ever made at the time. I would argue, too, that one of the biggest was from that era would have been, you might be a little young for this, but Vogue by Madonna. Uh, Hey, one of my big first public performances was at my sister's wedding, and I danced the Vogue, and I got caught on camera. (laughs) <laughs> and with all the, the bridesmaids and me and like, and doing the, no, I was big. I had a crush on Madonna. But given the age, given the age of your sister, you would have been like two at that wedding. But she's what in her seventies now. My sister is now 103. I know she's had her third hip replacement. Look, and I feel very comfortable talking about my sister now because in conversation with her a few weeks ago, I discovered that she's not listened to the show. Well, she's too busy trying to stay alive. <laughs> at that age you know especially with covid man she's yeah her poor poor german husband oh is he the cool husband yes yes, yes. the legendary I, I want to meet him okay we can arrange that he'll probably be weird and uncomfortable no he's uh one of the most comfortable socializers i've ever met like he's one of those guys that will go into a room with no like you won't know anybody He's very like he he's a master conversationalist. And he's German. Well, he's Canadian, but of German descent. His, pa- his parents were born in Germany. I can ask him about the SS. Yeah, he would. He he definitely knows a lot. About I was it. kidding. I was kidding because a lot of German people I've met do not want to talk about that. No, he. In fact, he. That's one of the interesting perspectives that uh, I got to hear about as a kid was his. Both his grandfathers were German soldiers in World War Two. But Vermont, not SS. My mom worked with a German woman named Tilly. And one day my mom asked her, like, so, you know, you were alive during the war. And Tilly immediately got really stony faced and said to her, we had nothing to do with that. And that was all she would say. Our mutual friend, Jeff. Yeah. Used to have a, uh, a, a, a woman who came to clean their home. And I won't say her name. <laughs> not that she's listening or her family is listening. But I just won't because it's not fair to her. But I think Jeff or his sister, uh, Steph, brought up the war with her and she got really upset. Oh. And and like the same sort of thing. Like, we had nothing to do with that. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. She was very – I didn't know Jeff had a sister. Yes. Okay. Anyway, we don't want to talk about people nobody knows about. Um. Hey, weird people. We People know about her. What do you mean? Well, not no on this podcast. Her. They don't give a shit. She's wonderful. Okay, fine. Um, I want to hear your story. Oh, yes, I have a story. We'll talk about 90s videos again, though, because that was a good... I was getting into that. We could talk about that for fucking hours. I feel like we need to have, like, several podcasts going where we can talk about these Can I tell you one more thing? One more thing. In the 90s, um, I very rarely, as you know, get into pop music. It's not my thing. Like, you know how I feel. Pop music. Oh, okay. Like, pop, you know, just not my thing. But one of my guilty pleasures was... When Janet Jackson did that um, Rhythm Nation album, I had it and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I actually taught myself the Rhythm Nation dance. Okay. I could do it back then. I could do the whole damn dance. It was a great dance. Anyway, that's all I had to say about that. I wore a Rhythm Nation costume at a music trivia contest a few years ago, and we won a prize, I think, for that. Oh, wait. Did you seriously with the hat, with the emblem? Yeah. I mean, I had to make it too. It was the first costume I've ever made like from scratch. That just brought me do you have a picture can you post it on our i do i do have a picture from that event I, i'll have to look for it but yeah because i loved that album okay tell me a story you bitch all right so i was a bit of a loss i'll be honest after last week's episode because i didn't realize that i had already talked about the alien life form known as elf so what could i do i scoured the internet high and low inside and out and then i found something riley that i think will tickle your fancy and that of our readers have you seen my fancy i did through a window once you didn't know i was there and i i felt very scared and (laughs) i needed to go home i called my mom and we had a long talk about it and she agreed that if I put that away in my 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 deep dark safe that I, I keep deep inside my mind, that it would never come back to haunt me. Okay. So, Riley, the story that I'd like to share with you today is actually very reminiscent of our very first episode. Which was the Mary Celeste. Mary Celeste. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. 
It's a haunted boat. I know it. It's not a haunted boat. All right. Early on the morning of Sunday, August 16th, 1942. So we're going right back to the World War, the Second World War. Again, it's two weeks in a row. Cool. Yeah. A U.S. Navy blimp. Bl- did, you, did you say blimp? Like flying dirigible? A dirigible. Yes. Uh, prepared to take off from Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay to search for enemy submarines. Okay. The United States had entered World War II only nine months earlier, but Japanese subs had sunk at least half a dozen Allied ships off the American West Coast. A Japanese sub had even shelled one of California's largest oil drilling facilities in February of 1942. A lot of people don't realize that. It, uh, they, like they actually had the war brought right to their doorstep, not just Hawaii, but the continental United States was fired upon. And that was the first time since the war of 1812 fought between the United States and Canada slash Great Britain. Do you know, I didn't know that either. I thought that that war was primarily fought in the Pacific. Which war? Well, the war with Japan, not the war of 1812. It absolutely was. It absolutely was. But there was a period there where the Japanese had. So after Pearl Harbor occurred, the American Navy was severely crippled mm-hmm. uh, because their aircraft carriers and uh, and battleships and cruisers and destroy- were utterly destroyed. Some ships survived and the Japanese weren't ready for they almost had too much success early on. They, so they couldn't exploit it. Right. And they certainly weren't ready to go and, and try to invade and conquer the United States. Like they would have been a suicide mission, but they did have sort of more free reign along the Western coast. And there were fears throughout the war that they would try to land in Alaska. That was one of the areas of the, and, and or the Canadian, like British Columbia. That was one of the concerns was that they would try to gain a foothold there. As a result of those Japanese actions, the L-8 carried two 325-pound Mark 17 depth bombs mounted on an external rack, a 30 caliber machine gun, and 300 rounds of ammunition. The blimp's mission, locate and sink any Japanese subs its crew spotted off San Francisco. Okay, so a blimp, I just got to clarify this in my head. It's the same way that they would drop torpedoes from planes, right? They would fall in the water and do their thing. Yeah. Okay. The The advantage a blimp has is it, it moves slower, so you can really get a deep, and they can hover. And they can also put writing on the side. And they would advertise great things like, hey, Japan, get out of here. Or Japan, uh, here's a sale for you, uh, buckle my shoe which was an old World War II saying for get out of here, scumbag. Are you high? I don't know. Okay, continue. L-8's two-man crew boarded the gondola shortly before takeoff. Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams were both Navy veterans, married, and with exemplary service records. Cody, the senior aviator of Airship Patrol Squadron 32, was a 1938 graduate of Annapolis, and he'd be remembered as taciturn by nature, not one and not one to lose his head under pressure. In fact, his commanding officer considered him one of the most capable pilots and one of the most able officers under his command. Nonetheless, Cody was a latecomer to the lighter-than-air or LTA flight. He hadn't been designated a naval airship aviator until December of 1941, which meant he'd been officially flying for just nine months. Although technically senior to his co-pilot, Cody was 11 years younger than Adams and significantly less experienced. In fact, the blimp's pilot had only 756 hours of LTA flight time, while Adams had 2,281 hours. I'm just shocked that it's only two people. Only two people. I'm just surprised by that. Well, it'd be common in most airships or planes, to have one or two pilots, right? It just seems weird, but that's me. The the lieutenant did have one notable achievement under his belt. In April of 1942, he'd flown L.A. to deliver precious cargo to the USS Hornet, a carrier. Cody had held L.8 steady over the carrier's bobbing flight deck while 300 pounds of spare parts were lowered to the deck. That maneuver, which required a fair degree of piloting skill, contributed to his being promoted to Lieutenant Senior Grade 2 months later. Wow. And that, that carrier, the um, the Hornet, 
was de- he was delivering the bombs for something that was called Operation Doolittle, which was uh, the bombing of Tokyo from mainland China. I never knew that Tokyo was bombed. Oh my God, yeah. Relentlessly towards the end of the war. Okay, okay. Firebomb too. I don't know that much about the war with Japan because I think it's overshadowed a lot by the war with Germany. Like, I, I really don't know that much about it. I, I, like, I've seen the, the movie Midway, the original, not the stupid remake, but that's about all I know about it. Yeah, no, they, 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 um, as the Allies started to, or the Americans, but the Australians played a, and Kiwis and Papua New Guineans even played a, a really significant role in pushing the Japanese back. And as they gained islands getting towards Japan, they absolutely started bombing. Uh, the Japanese. So, I mean, that war ended pretty quickly because of the bomb, right? Correct. Okay, cool. Not cool that the bomb, but cool that you clarified that. And that, and that is such a, well, we're not going to talk about that here, but such a divisive thing, right? It, it absolutely did end the war early, but was it worth killing that many innocent women and children, little children, right? I just, I have tr- a tough time getting my head around that one. Ensign Adams had 20 years in LTA craft. A veteran of the Navy's giant rigid airship program, he'd served aboard three ships. The 38-year-old crewman had even been decorated by the German government for rescuing Hindenburg passengers after the airship caught fire and crashed. Though Adams was more experienced in airships than Cody, he'd only received his commission the day before their August 16th flight. In other words, he was making his first LTA patrol as an officer. All that to say, both of these men were extremely capable and experienced pilots. Okay. The airship had a reputation as an excellent flyer. In fact, during its 1,092 trips aloft, it had required no more than the usual maintenance and repair. Inspected four days prior to Cody and Adam's departure, L-8 was deemed to be in fine working condition okay so on the day in question at 6:03 a.m l8 lifted off from treasure island with cody at the controls so if you can picture what san francisco looks like i can i've been there right so there's these sort of it's a thin strip of land and the, there's a break in it where the golden gate bridge is that ter- that leads into san francisco bay yes oakland's on the the eastern side of that bay so Treasure Island's right in the middle of it. Okay. And it's a, it's a, a, a base, a naval air base. Winds on that day were light, and there was a ceiling of 800 to 1,000 feet. The day was slightly overcast, but visibility was good at three to five miles. Cody could even see the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge in the distance. L-8's mission was to patrol within a 50-mile radius of San Francisco. Once Cody passed over the Golden Gate Bridge, he headed southwest toward the Farallon Islands. Okay. Did you go there at all? I've, I've, you... No, I'm, no, I've not heard of that. So the Farallon Islands are are just like west, but a fair distance into the ocean. Like they're, I don't know if you can see them from the, the mainland coast, but there are a, a tiny series of islands just west of San Francisco. I just remember I could see Alcatraz. I can always see Alcatraz. Always? Well, it's like I kind of know that one day I'll I'll be sent to prison. That's a terror of mine. I've I am terrified of being sent to prison for not doing anything bad yes. or being incarcerated in a mental hospital for no reason. Oh, see, I think that'd be just kind of relaxing. No, because they don't, they'll because if you get upset, they'll freaking give you Thorazine and yeah, great. I don't want to poop my pants on Thorazine <laughs> like that. I just I don't care. That one I'd be less afraid of. And it's funny. That's, I, I don't know why I've got a fear of prison. Well, I'm claustrophobic, so it would just kill me. Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know? Right? Yeah. Oh. And I, I'm mouthy, and I would be shivved in the kitchen. Oh, you would be murdered within a month. Exactly. I'd be dead, and no one would. And it wouldn't up. be pretty. Like, it would be a painful. Oh, battle. yeah, I'd be. They'd get me in the, the, the fridge, and they'd shiv me and cut off my feet. It'd be terrible. They off your feet. I don't know. I just pictured that. It's insulting. You know, as I learned when I was doing research for one of these, I learned about mob killings. And the mob, depending on um, how much respect they had for you, if they shot you in the face, it was like they just had no respect for you. Right. 
Yeah, because you couldn't then have uh, an open casket. Yeah, well, then they just thought you were you were scum, so they just shoot you in the face. Mm-hmm. There you go. We're a cheery bunch, aren't we? Yeah. Thanks a lot for taking us to, down that road. At 7.38 a.m., Riley, an hour and a half into the patrol, he radioed L8's position as four miles east of the Fairlawns. Four minutes later, he sent a second message. Am investigating suspicious oil slick standby. Oh. An oil slick could indicate an enemy sub lurking below the waves. So it's not surprising that L8 dropped two flares at 7.42 a.m. and began scrutinizing the area. Why would anybody drop a flare into an oil slick? Kaboom. Uh, to mark the location. Wouldn't it burn? I guess not. Okay. It may be diluted. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Apparently that was standard procedure. I'm very agreeable tonight. Okay. <laughs> well, what are you going to say? No, I don't accept that has happened. This is the night you want to hit me up for money. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. When the Liberty ship, Albert Gallatin, so a Liberty ship was a class of uh, merchant ship that was developed in World War II. Okay. It was sort of like a cookie cutter design that they used. And with these merchant ships, they actually were armed uh, so they could fight back if they were attacked. Very smart. Yeah. But can I just say, who names a ship Albert Gallatin? That's a terrible name. I, I'm sure Albert Gallatin was a good guy, maybe, but... I wouldn't feel inspired being on that ship. He's somebody like, he sounds like he'd be like employee of the month at Subway. Uh, hey, everybody. We're really proud to announce that uh, for the second time, Albert Gallatin is our Subway employee of the month. Um, Albert, you get a, a Subway parka and a $10 gift certificate, which is good for any Subway in Canada. Congratulations. <laughs> Subway parka. And only, and only his mother shows up for the, uh, <laughs> for the ceremony. And oddly enough, her name is also Albert. <laughs> and she shaves. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, when the, so when the Albert Gallatin spotted L8 smoke flares, its crew sounded the general alarm and manned its guns. Sailors from the nearby fishing trawler Daisy Gray, which I'm, that's a far superior name. It sounds like a fun ship to be on. Yes. Hey, let's go fishing on the Daisy Gray. I want to know about who Daisy Gray was. They named the ship. I want to know more about their crew, and I feel like we need to put a pause on this show. Let's just... Right. Well, Daisy Gray, who was she? She must have been a famous person. So I'm going to say that Daisy Gray was the captain's wife. Yep. Okay. Or mother. Okay. She sounds like a nice person. She'd show up with a cake, you know? Yes. Yeah. cake. And a nice bottle of uh, chilled wine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, class. Mm -hmm. So sailors from this beautiful ship, the Daisy Gray, were worried that the blimp was about to depth charge an enemy sub and pulled in its nets. But no bombs were dropped. Instead, L8 circled the area for more than an hour. The blimp was close enough to Daisy Gray that the trawler's first mate could make out two men in the gondola. As Daisy Gray's and Galton's crews watched through binoculars, the blimp circled at 200 to 300 feet and at one point descended to 30 feet above the waves as if its crew wanted a closer look at something. Wow. Yeah. And not that's not standard to get that close. Yeah, that's low for a blimp. You're in real danger, like a rogue wave pops up, you're a gonzo. Then shortly after 9 a.m., L8 dropped ballast rose and headed back towards San Francisco. Since blimps regularly patrolled the California coast, nobody thought LA's movement seemed unusual. But that was the last time Cody and Adams were ever seen or heard from. Oh. L8 had broadcast its last message at 7.42 a.m. before circling the oil slick. After that, wing control tried to reestablish radio contact without success. Holy shit. Squadron headquarters wasn't told of the blimp's radio silence until 8.20, but it wasn't unusual for blimps to lose contact during a patrol. Besides, Cody and Adams had more than enough fuel to return to base. But when L-8 still hadn't responded by 8.50, two Kingfisher float planes were sent to search for the blimp. Other aircraft in the area were also alerted to be on the lookout. The next indication of L8's whereabouts came at 10.49 a.m. 
when a Pan-American pilot reported seeing the blimp over the Golden Gate Bridge. So it's moved quite a bit further east now than it's where, where it was circling, looking for that sub. He spotted nothing wrong with the ship, which appeared to be under control and heading back to base. So perfectly normal, right? Mm-hmm. At 11, one of the Kingfishers reported seeing L8 three miles west of Salada Beach. So that is uh, just south of the Golden Gate Bridge now. So not moving towards um, Treasure Island where they should have been going. The, and the, their flight should have been over around 10, 1030. Like they were scheduled to land around 10, 1030 in the morning. They saw they, the Kingfisher sees it uh, uh, heading towards Salada Beach and rising at the same time, going through the cloud ceiling to uh, a height of 2,000 feet. And blimps are not supposed to go that high, They're right? They're not supposed to go that high. And then shortly after that, descending back down into the clouds. Nothing indicated that L8 was not in controlled flight. But as we just mentioned, 2,000 feet is way too close to a blimp's pressure height, so it can't it can't maintain its right its its integrity uh, at that altitude. And they, in fact, there are vents that automatically are supposed to go off to prevent that from happening, to let pressure out, to then let the the balloon descend so that uh, the gas cells don't burst. Normally, the crewmen would have avoided surpassing pressure height, but for some reason, they had apparently ignored this restriction. Next to site L-8 was an Army P-38 pilot, which is a kind of fighter plane, who spotted the blimp near Mile Rock. So that, that they're now north of Salada Beach and quite a bit north. So it, it was going east, then it went south. Now it's going north. So it's going completely weird. Yeah. So this P-38 pilot, he notices nothing amiss, and he's assuming it was headed towards Treasure Island at that point. Okay. A few minutes later... A gentleman by the name of Richard Qualm, who is an off-duty seaman heading for a day at the beach, was driving along the coastal highway between San Mateo and San Francisco when he spotted L8 in the distance and noted the blimp was bent in the middle. Qualm stopped to snap a photograph and his film would soon be confiscated by the authorities. Oh no. At approximately 11.15 a.m., five hours after L-8 left Treasure Island and over an hour past when it was expected to land, the blimp approached the shore at Ocean Beach, which is just east of their last, uh, sorry, which is just east of uh, their last location in San Francisco. Okay. It's now, it is moving east. A solitary bather noticed the blimp hanging 50 feet offshore, its motors silent. L8's bag was sagging noticeably as it moved broadside to the wind, only 50 feet above the water. The blimp touched down briefly on the beach, then moved inland until its gondola hit the side of a hill, packing the starboard engine with dirt and leaves and bending its propellers. The blow also knocked one of the depth charges loose, which rolled downhill before coming to a stop. Suddenly free of 325 pounds, L8 then rose, cleared the embankment, and disappeared from sight. You know what that reminds me of a bit? What? Up. That's amazing. Crazy, eh? Well, there must be. Somebody must have got pictures of this. There are. Okay, good. Yeah, there are. This, like, this is not one of those, like, well, I don't know if it's true. Like, this this did happen, like, for sure. There's lots of documentation of it and lots of witnesses. Sunday morning golfers at San Francisco's exclusive Olympic Club stopped to watch the blimp limp by overhead. They probably didn't realize that the remaining depth charge could only be detonated by water pressure, which is why they gave it a wide berth. So they see this military ship coming with, and it has, you know, it's bombs visible. So these guys scatter and get the hell out of there. One club member reported having seen a parachute descending from L8 while the blimp was still offshore. And he wasn't the only one to see something of the crew. 17-year-old C.E. Taylor told the San Francisco Call Bulletin, I put my binoculars on it and I could see figures inside the cabin. By that time, thousands of people were watching the derelict blimp float inland. Members of the Daly City Fire Department who were burning brush on a nearby hill gave chase, soon joined by local police, good Samaritans and what was described as a posse of looky-loos. <laughs> I love that. 
L8 then descended toward Daly City, a suburb two blocks south of San Francisco's county line, striking the roofs of several homes. Ethel Appleton uh, heard the blimp's drag line scrape across her rooftop and instinctively grabbed her eight-year-old daughter, concerned for their safety. At 11.30 a.m., L8 came to a rest in the middle of the 400 block of Bellevue Avenue. So the blimp's cabin nosed into a utility pole in front of a family's home. The force of the collision swung the blimp's tail into the electrical wires, sending a shower of sparks to the ground. Fortunately, L8's fuel supply didn't ignite, but the blimp's envelope was punctured and the airship slid to the ground, tail first, slowly deflating. One of the first people on the scene was William Morris, a volunteer fireman, and he said, It was a miracle she didn't catch fire when she struck those telephone wires, Morris commented. Morris rushed to the aid of the blimp's crew as sirens blared and the air filled with escaping helium. But... When the fireman peered inside the gondola, he was surprised to find that the door was open and nobody was in the cabin. Mm. Daly City fireman Thomas O'Brien also found the gondola empty, but noticed that the door to the cabin was latched open, meaning it had been opened and secured open. Wow. Okay. Okay. And the microphone for the loudspeaker system used to communicate with surface ships was dangling outside the doorway. Firemen soon surrounded the blimp, slashing its envelope in an effort to free the crew they thought must be trapped inside. They saw no sign of Cody or Adams. As a precaution, authorities set up a perimeter around the crash site and firemen lashed the remaining depth bomb to the gondola. Later that day, 40 men from the Naval Air Service and another 50 from a nearby Army post set out to locate the missing depth charge and hopefully the pilots. They retrieved the depth charge by 3 p.m., but unfortunately, Cody and Adams were still nowhere to be found. Oh, wow. How two naval officers vanished from one of the most heavily trafficked areas between San Fran and the Farallon Islands, while their blimp was being tracked by ships and planes, not to mention people on the ground, remains a mystery. Word soon surfaced that warm coffee and and a half-eaten sandwich had been found in the control car, a rumor that later proved to be untrue. But a hat belonging to one of the crewmen was discovered resting on the flight controls and L8's radio was in perfect working order. Mm. Do you know what I'm thinking immediately? I'm sure you're going to mention this too. Did gas escape and they went nuts? No. Okay. Because I'm I'm just thinking they gas. Yeah, could be, right? And there's, I'll get, I will get to, there are sort of some theories like that. Okay. It's helium, right? So I don't know if helium would make you do weird things, but I'll, I'll, I'm sure it would after a while. But there is a, a direct answer to your query. Okay. Keep going. So an inspection soon revealed that all three of L8's parachutes were still on board along with its single life raft. A briefcase containing classified material was found behind the pilot's seat. L8's engines were in perfect working order. The ignition switches were on and the blimps instruments and flight controls operated normally with four hours of gas remaining in the fuel tanks. In other words, there was nothing whatsoever wrong with L8 except it locked a crew. Dear Lord. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with this ship. However, two of the three life jackets carried on board were missing. But regulations required Cody and Adams to wear life jackets while patrolling over water. So it's not surprising they would disappear along with the men. They were probably wearing them. Makes sense. The only thing slightly strange was that the blimp's batteries were drained and part of its fuel supply had been dumped. Normally, a blimp wouldn't dump fuel unless it needed to increase buoyancy in a hurry. Since LA didn't seem to have that need, it wasn't clear why fuel had been lost and its engines idled. The U.S. Navy immediately launched an extensive search for the two missing men. Air raid wardens and San Mateo County Highway Patrolmen spent the night combing the area where L-8 had drifted ashore. For the next three days, Navy ships and planes assisted by the Coast Guard searched the Pacific. But despite calm seas and good visibility, there was still no sign of Cody and Adams. The Navy notified the men's wives they were officially listed as missing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Asked whether L-8 could have been attacked by the enemy, a Navy spokesman responded, 
that's very remote. And Commander Donald M. Mackey said he was at a complete loss to explain the mystery, and a second spokesman echoed his assessment. Nothing the Navy knows now has given a satisfactory explanation of what happened. Two days later, the Navy convened a board of investigation. The seven-day inquiry took testimony from a civilian and naval personnel and eventually established that no fire, no submersion, no misconduct, and no missiles struck the L-8. Wow. Witnesses from Daisy Gray and Gallatin testified that during the time they were watching the blimp, its crew was aboard, the engines were running, and they saw no one fall from the cabin, which is one of the big theories that they fell out. Ironically, this is an interesting little bit, Gallatin would be sunk in January 1944 by a Japanese submarine I-26 operating in the same waters where L-8 had been patrolling two years before. So it's possible that was the submarine that they had seen. Right, okay. Despite calling 35 witnesses, the inquiry could find no answers to the most basic questions. Why did Cody and Adam stop broadcasting if the radio was working? What caused the two men to leave their airship in mid-flight? And what happened between the time they spotted the oil slick off the Fairlawns at 7.42 a.m. and the point when L-8 came ashore at Ocean Beach around 11.15 a.m.? There are many theories as to why Cody and Adams vanished. One is they were captured by a Japanese sub. Another is they were spying for Japan and rendezvoused with a, with a submarine to escape. And this one is, I'm just mentioning it because it's one of the ones that's out there. A stowaway had overpowered the two men and then somehow vanished as well. Uh, their disappearance was an AWOL scheme gone askew. Uh, one crewman murdered the other over a woman, dumped his body, then fell overboard himself. Another was a rogue wave, swept both men away. But again, there was no sighting of a rogue wave. I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing over over a woman. Of course, it's a of course it's over a woman. And this one, this is a more probable one. Uh, the L eight had temporarily dipped into the ocean, washing away both men. But the perennial favorite. Mm-hmm. is what do you think i'm trying to think of any other possibilities i don't know what they were abducted by aliens oh really that's the number one most popular theory not that it's the most likely but that is the most popular theory that one didn't even cross my radar because i mean there has to be context were there sightings of lights in the sky in that particular time frame is i'd never heard ever heard san francisco being so- to mary celeste what? Maybe that's what happened to Mary Celeste. Could damn well be. Seriously. San Francisco was not known as an alien encounter hotspot. Don't know. It would be in the middle of the... It's very weird, right? It's yeah. just... Do you know what I want to know? Before, sorry, I, I, mean, I might be asking a question you don't know. All those witnesses that saw the dirigible, you mentioned that the people on one of the boats saw the crew. Yes. How many of the witnesses later, like at the country club, did anybody see the crew? Yeah, so there was a boy on the beach who said when the beat, when the, the blimp was approaching, mm-hmm. he saw them in, in the gondola. So they have kind of a time frame. They know like, okay, this is the point in time when the crew was no longer being seen. The problem is, is from everything I read, that boy is the only one to say, yeah, I, I saw them. So he may have reconstructed oh. a memory that isn't, you know, he just assumed that they were there. Because you mentioned the country club people or the private club. I assume a lot of people saw it. So I'm wondering if anybody there. Again, though, if you see a armed blimp descending on you, you're probably not looking through the windows to see if there's pilots there. Yeah, yeah. Then it was the war. I mean, I, I believe they weren't in the ship. At that point, they were out of the ship. Okay. Okay. So most puzzling to investigators was why L8's crew failed to broadcast a radio message after sighting the oil slick at 7.42 a.m. Because that would be standard procedure, right? Radio it in, we've spotted something. Because you want you want help in that situation. And if one of the crew had fallen from the cabin while investigating the oil slick, why didn't the other man radio for help? If both men were still on board when L8 headed back to San Fran around 9 a.m., what led to their disappearance later? Otto Gross, who has been researching, this is sort of, in keeping with you, what you were asking earlier, uh, he's been re- researching the disappearance of L8's crew since 2009, believes he found the answer. Gross's theory 
detailed at his website, ghostblimp.com. Ghostblimp.com? The name, this is the name of the ship is the Ghost Blimp. Okay. Is that the Blimp had been secretly testing experimental radar and poorly shielded microwaves overpower the men, causing them to tumble out of the cabin. All that to say Gross's claim is completely and utterly speculative. Uh, There's no evidence that they were testing anything on that ship. It's a theory, again, that maybe they had this. And again, I'm not sure that microwaves would force you to fall out of, uh, you know, open a door and fall out of a ship. Dan, are you questioning the integrity of ghostblimp.com? <laughs> I know. It's come to that, hasn't it? I think it's, I bet it's a really stupid reason. I bet there was a spider in the cabin and they just freaked. Well, yeah, that was me in there. It was very possible. You know, I've uh, so I do have a fear of spiders. I've come a long way, though. Well, you have to when you're a homeowner. You have to. You have to suck it up. Yeah, I'm sorry, people. I I feel like my episodes go way longer than yours. They always do. They're always like 20 minutes longer. But I do have to tell this story. So several years ago, we rented a cottage in Prince Edward County, which is uh, on the north shore of Lake Ontario, one of the Great Lakes of the world. Yeah, it's it's very one percenty there. Yeah, we're not, but it we rent we would rent a cottage for a week. And it was this, it was our second year uh, in the area. And we rented this quaint little, it was a rustic cottage, you know, it had a TV in it, but no air conditioning, you know, it had running water, which was nice and and, uh, indoor plumbing, but like, that's it. It was, and it was very cute and pretty. We were sitting there on the first night, the kids are in their pajamas. They're getting ready to go to bed. We're all watching TV and I see a little spider coming through the crack in the ceiling. It was like a false, uh, like a floating ceiling, the tiled ceiling. And I say to my wife, oh gosh, look, at like there's a little brown spider that just came through there. And so she gets up on a chair and kills it because she has no fear of spiders at all. Oh, good. Yeah. That's the best quality to have in a woman. She is very tough. She's the one, she's the tough one in the family. So then we see another. Oh God, I know where this is going. And then another, and then another. And then another and another and another and another and another. I think it was over 30 that we killed that we could see. I took a picture of one before because I'd never seen this kind of spider before. I took a picture of one. I'll, I'll post this. I can post this as well on uh, in, in with the, the episode's photos because I had no idea. I started doing research and I am looking at it online. I'm like, oh my God, I think this is a brown recluse spider, which is like the second deadliest spider in Canada. Yeah. Um, they're not going to kill adults, but they they can kill kids and they'll cause necrosis in your limb if they bite you. Yeah. We ended up having to call the owner the next morning. He, God love him. He sent an exterminator in. I spoke with the exterminator. I said, this is what I think it is. And he goes, ah, it's not, it can't be that. And I showed him the picture and his face went white. And if initially he was just going to spray the outside of the cottage. Oh God. And then when he saw that, he goes, I'm, I'm sorry, but we have to fumigate the entire, the entire place. Just burn it to the fucking ground. And we had to leave for the day. Like we couldn't go. We had, we went and stayed at the Sandbanks provincial beach. And, and then he, and he told us, he said, when you go in, you're going to see a lot of dead spiders, hundreds Right. And some of them still dangling by their, their web. That's disgusting. Yeah. It was infested. It was the attic it was infested. And, and they was, just, and it was recluse. It was that spider. It was a brown recluse. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, I feel like I have to shower now. Never. I did not enjoy a single night in that place after that. I went camping in Cape Cod, which was a big mistake because I just don't have the temperament for it. And um, we went to bed that night in the tent and I went to bed in my tent and uh, I was with other people. They were awful. All they wanted to do was drink and be rowdy. And you know, I'm not like that. Anyway, so I woke up uh, the next morning and I had gone to bed really late because they wouldn't shut up and stop drinking. It was probably about nine in the morning. And I, I was one of those nylon tents. It was orange. And I looked up and the whole top of the tent 
was covered with silhouettes of spiders, big spiders. On the outside, though? On the outside? But I could see them silhouetted through the light coming through. And so I called, I screamed for the people that I was traveling with, and they came over and they took a, they took a, a stick or a broom or something and got the spiders off. And later that day, we found out that that campground had a really bad spider infestation. They had gotten into the pine trees. Yeah. And they had just propagated like crazy. And they had already sprayed a couple of times, but that campground should not have been open. It was that bad. And so they'd left the cooler open all night. The cooler had like 20 spiders inside it. <sighs> they were everywhere. They were in like the tailpipe of the van. Gross. Oh, it was just awful. Now, and that being said, look, if there's people who love spiders, I, I love spiders in this. Like I know how important they are. But couldn't they have been attractive? If something's going to be useful like that, it should look cute. It's a war machine, man. And they keep us safe. It's a war machine. Or they keep us safe. They're actually our friends. You're right, though. They are a war machine. Oh, yeah. They're meant to kill and eat and hunt. Like, they're they're actually pretty wicked. It's just that they look disgusting. Well, I and we're, I think we're hardwired to be afraid of Yeah, them. we should be. Yeah. yeah which, yeah. anyway. All right. Let's get back to this. We've lost the narrative of Cody and Adams as and, well. As, and we've, and then, we've lost half our listeners. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so whatever caused the loss of Cody and Adams probably occurred between their last radio broadcast and when the Pan Am crewman spotted the blimp above pressure height at 1020 AM. So remember I, I mentioned that they had raised, they'd gone above uh, the clouds. And, and then, so at that point, they probably weren't in the ship anymore or they were not, in control of the ship at least at that point so it descended because those those valves went off it it yeah. had those security measures in place as the navy's board of inquiry concluded careful analysis of the evidence indicates no reason for voluntary abandonment of the airship the board believe therefore believes that abandonment was involuntary the simplest explanation is that both men left the airship not, not long after their last broadcast most likely, one fell overboard while surveying the oil slick or possibly fixing the engine. That would account for the two smoke bombs, perhaps, being dropped. Maybe it wasn't a submarine. And then, the, you know, the ship maybe descended to 30 feet, and the use of the loudspeaker found dangling from the gondola presumably was to communicate with the man who had gone overboard. So a man fell out, ship descends, guys looking out, and then maybe he fell, falls out himself, right? Whoever was trying to help the other that makes them that makes them sound like clowns it, it and that doesn't make sense right as the naval findings from the naval inquiry suggest there may also have been issues with the safety latch on l8's door doubts as to fastening of the safety lock takeoff and adequacy of the latch suggest the possibility that the latch might have been released accidentally permitting the passenger to fall out Failure to use the radio or the life raft might indicate that the pilot hoped to recover his passenger very quickly. The fact that both engines were stopped might be explained by the pilot's attempt to slow the airship while heading into a very light breeze. Mm -hmm. The open door latched full forward. The microphone and radio headset hanging out the door lend credence to this theory. In such an attempt, the pilot might himself have gone overboard. No other adequate explanation offers itself for the abandonment of an airworthy airship. A year after Cody and Adams went missing, they were legally declared dead. The Navy closed the book on the incident, officially classifying it as 100% unknown and undetermined. We'll probably never know what really happened to Cody and Adams. It's unlikely their bodies will ever be found, of course. Like the Mary Celeste, this is a mystery that will endure the test of time. All we know for certain is that two men simply vanished. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. The gondola with the collapsed uh, fabric yeah, right in the middle of a neighborhood and everyone's just standing around. Oh, God. So what do you think? What do you think happened? Because that last little bit, that seems like the most probable. But again, why, why would you not follow protocol? There's so many things you could have done. He could have sent the life raft over, like the, 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 the life raft over, his his friend so that he would be safe that would be my immediate you know instinctual thing to do it wouldn't be to hang out the door and then fall like a buffoon into the ocean no and i these were highly trained people these were highly trained you yeah. don't put a piece of equipment like that in the hands of people who are not really experienced mm -hmm. and even then let's say the door does pop open by accident why still why does it's not like this is a uh, a helicopter that's 
racing through the sky and tilting, this thing stays level. And it's also slow. It's really slow. Yeah. I can see the gondola too. The gondola in the picture is massive. Yeah. It's the yeah. size of like a, a city bus. It, it's big. Yeah. So it, it makes no sense to me that even if, even if, like, I think in stormy weather, you'd want that bloody door closed, but I think you could manage to not fall to the ocean. And here's the other thing. If he fell from a high height, like 100, 200 feet, he's not surviving that fall. So why would the guy stop the engines, descend to 30 feet, look out the door, not call a radio for help? Mm-hmm. Again, wouldn't that be sort of your first instinct? I Yeah, that doesn't I, – I don't think the alien thing holds water. Um, that's just weird. I think it's because the alien thing makes sense in the sense that nothing else seems to make sense. Yeah. So maybe they got take, but yeah, there was no, there is no evidence. The lack of evidence doesn't make evidence. Maybe it's just a stupid accident. Like something happened. Maybe there was something outside that he opened the door to try to fix or remedy and something happened. Maybe he was trying to hold on to the other guy and they, both got i don't know yeah there was nothing wrong with the ship i don't know i so if they're here's know. the thing if they're trying to fix something and they fall that thing would have still been broken i still say then it was a spider <laughs> so that is the mystery of the ghost blue i love the picture of it just sitting there imagine that and everybody's like what the fuck i can see too in the crowd surrounding it there's sailors and military personnel yeah they're all like what the fuck yeah I like that. I'd never heard of that either. We're on a military um, bent here. Yeah. yeah, we are. Next, I was going to do a completely different topic this week. As was I last week. And and I um, found this and I couldn't let it go. Oh, it's just interesting. It's one of those things probably not a lot of our listeners are going to have heard of. Right. I thought that, and it was kind of cool. I just, it's, I, I love stories that there's no easy explanation. Well, no, imagine that like they've never been found. Like never, been never found. been found. And that's weird too. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's odd because there was extensive search, right? So calm waters. Now I'm, I'm sure there's currents that maybe, but they would know what the currents. But isn't San Francisco, isn't the water around there notoriously turbulent? That's one of the reasons why most of the people that tried to swim from Alcatraz died, right? Yes, granted, but they would know what those currents do. They would know where to look for bodies, right? Yeah. I, I would assume. They would know, okay, if they fell in this general area, this is where the currents go. So this is where we should be looking. I don't know. I do not know. Because remember, too, they're wearing life jackets. Yeah. Uh-huh. And if they had life jackets on, which were not recovered? No. So where are those life jackets? They would find them. And why, and why didn't they, if they fell out of the blimp, swim? It's so weird. Yeah. I like this one. I like this one because it's gentle. There's no violence in it. There's nothing. It's like the Mary Celeste. It's like, where are these people, man? Where'd they go? Maybe they maybe they went to a different dimension. An alternate earth. Where blimps where blimps are still a mode of transportation. Oh, can I just say this really fast? This just reminded me of something. What? You're a fan of Terry Pratchett. Not at all. I thought you yes, you love good omens. Yeah, but I fucking hate Terry Pratchett. I hate his writing. His writing Reminds me of something I would have thought was funny when I was 17. Oh, I like Discworld. Hate it. Okay, well, we'll agree to disagree. He wrote a a, a series of books called, I think the, the first one's like The Long Earth or The Long War. It's about this blimp that travels through like different dimensions. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible. And it's sad because <laughs> it's his last book. He died in the process of writing this series. And uh, I just wish that he hadn't chosen that to be his final project. I have to tell you in this episode, I think that your story about the spiders at the cottage was equally terrifying. Here's a final little one. It was that, no, sorry, it was the next summer cleaning my shed, getting all the stuff out of my shed in the backyard to open up my backyard for the summer, the deck furniture and kids' toys and all that. And I'm finishing up and I'm sliding the doors closed it's this uh, white metal shed yeah i know those sheds yeah and i see this black spider going like uh, up its web uh, in the opening of the door which normally wouldn't and this thing's always filled with spiders and i'm terrified of it but i just sort of you know grin and bear it and do what i have to do but as it's going up its web i notice what i think is like a red marking on its back i think it's a black widow 
I'm thinking it's a black widow. Again, I'm terrified of spiders. So we called an exterminator. It was a father and son. They were awesome. I love that they're father and son. Yeah, and they've been in business for a long time. And the guy said to me, he goes, look, I've been doing this for 30 years. Yes, there's been cases of black widows in Ottawa, but I've never I've never seen one. So it's probably not that. But what what I'll do is I'll I'll fumigate your shed and that will only cost you like 50 bucks. And if I find something in there, well then we'll do the rest of your house. I cannot believe how much fumigation your family's been susceptible to. Your kids aren't going to grow past 4 feet tall. Uh Connor might not, but he does have a third arm. I was going to say, Jesus, Dan. No, it, this was we weren't we didn't get our house fumigated. We got the shed fumigated. So they fumigate and then the guy goes through everything and fuck, he finds it. It was a black widow. Oh man, you are cursed. So he, he was like, okay, look, normally I don't spray for spiders because he was the one saying to me, actually, that story, like they're our best friend. You know, I've seen people die from mosquito bites or get really sick. And, you know, I, I always will argue, keep the spiders. You want them. You don't want the other, you know, some of the other things that they eat. Um, but he said, no, with kids, you can't have that in your home. So he, he sprayed the perimeter, the outside of my house and he had already fumigated the shed. We didn't find anything else. They inspected inside the house and didn't see any evidence. So it was probably a, a lone wolf. It probably came off like someone's fruit or something like that at the grocery store. And, and somehow this poor little thing was all alone, like no chance to mate or reproduce and just trying to make a life for itself in my shed. I have a good friend who, you know, those little boxes of clementines you buy at Christmas? Yes. She bought one and came home and in the bottom was a tiny little mummified bird. I saw it. It was about the size of my thumb, a little tiny bird from Morocco oh. that made its way to Canada, but died like those people who go into wheel wells and freeze to death. It probably got what? You know, people who try to stow away in planes, they oh, get yeah. caught in the wheel wells and then they freeze to death as they don't, they don't realize. Well, that, that. I bet that bird maybe flew into the crate and then they wrapped it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think fruit is refrigerated and gassed as well a lot of times, right? Yeah, so it travels uh, long distances, I'm sure it is. Yeah, well, they gas stuff to ripen it, right? I think they use gases to ripen fruit. I believe they do. Yeah, uh, I, I'm learning. Well, no wonder. Here. No wonder we're also fucking unhealthy, right? Especially, especially your family. We have a fumigation corner over there. We enjoy our cans of Chef Boyardee and uh, uh, packaged salami and bologna. I had salami recently. I hadn't had it in a long time. And my mouth felt like lard for like three hours afterwards. Like, Well, it's, it's very fatty, right? Yeah, and it's just my whole interior of my mouth felt like it was coated in Vaseline. Couldn't have been a good salami. Good salami doesn't do that to you. I don't really like salami. Okay. That's not my thing. Well, there we go. Fuck, we talked a lot tonight. Ugly Mountains, <laughs> Bare Naked Ladies. Was that the other one you hated? And Salami. Yeah, I'm not a Bare Naked Ladies fan, but the best thing ever was, you know how we often talk about our friend Jeff? The best thing ever was watching Jeff try to do that Five Days song at karaoke. What is that? Five days since you looked at me, touched my bum and called me Connie. Whatever the lyrics are. What's yeah. that song called? Uh, five Days? Jeff, your friend, tried to do it, and my friend, tried to do it, at, and he didn't realize the rap was so hard to do. He also did that with uh, Soft Cell's uh, Tainted Love. Well, I can do that one. That's easy. He tried, and he couldn't, and he messed up on stage. I remember that one. Okay. And I say that because I, I, well, I'm better at it now, but I used to not be very good at karaoke. I'm a better singer now than I was when you used to direct me. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. I learned my range. We have a low voice, so you're probably like a bad I like tone. to I sing a lot of Spice Girl songs. Na, 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 na. Oh, God. Okay. Na, na, we got to go. Na, na, Our na, listeners na, are. Spice up your life. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you, <laughs> if you weathered this storm and didn't get swept off our blimp with this show, thank you for sticking around. If you enjoy listening to The Weird, please uh, give us a uh, follow, subscribe to our, our show on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. If you enjoy it, share it with your friends. Tell everybody, high and low, get onto the mountaintop and scream The Weird's name. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. It we is. We plan on doing 32 seasons. Exactly. And then we're going to switch to something else. You'll be in your 80s. It'll be interesting. <laughs> You're awful. Your sister will be uh, 
over a hundred. We really are hopeful for her to hit 120 and it's getting more and more plausible. And she'll get a certificate from the prime minister. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when you, in Canada, when you turn 120 years old, you get a certificate. Actually, when you turn a hundred, you get that. You get a certificate at a hundred and a keychain at 120. <laughs> of course it's a keychain From uh, a Petro-Canada gas station. All right. All right. Thank you for the story, for the blimp. And the spiders. I like the spiders. The spiders was like a bonus. Yeah, that was like a bonus track, eh? Because it was gross. Mm-hmm. I could just see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening to The Weird. We love you. And keep on uh, keep on throwing comments our way. We love it. And we love you. And we're glad that you're here for the ride. And uh, we'll come back next week with more things to unsettle your dreams. Good night, everybody. Good night. Jesus wants to know what the scoop is, what the scoop is, tell baby Jesus what the scoop is, he just wants to know what the story is.